part of it by yourself, okay? You're gonna do this and this. Are you gonna sound grumpy for all of eternity on this episode? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. I'm not because it's be gonna be recorded forever and ever. Okay. You are. <clears throat> all right. Lucian, come on. Did you learn half? Yes, you have to. Yes, you okay. do. Okay. Sit, sit down, please. What is that? Hank making all that noise? Hank, stop. Okay, Lucian, sit down. I'm already recording. I need you to sit, and your voice needs to be coming right through here. Okay, you're, don't touch the table. Don't be moving your chairs. I can hear every little thing that the chair does, okay? Ready, set, go. Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Peachy Keen. I wish no, no, stop. You guys are supposed to do that part together. All right, take two. <laughs> One, two, three. Hi, Hi y'all. y'all, and welcome back. To- <laughs> what? Stop. What? No, it's for both of us, Lucian. Okay, take three. Hi, Hi y'all, and welcome, welcome back, back to Michiki. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take four. Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Michiki. <laughs> okay, stop, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Lucian. And I'm Jules. And this is our mom's podcast. In each episode, she talks to women of all sorts about life and art in the South. Okay, so there you have it. Uh, Yeah, that was a cute idea. Like so many other cute ideas I've tried to have to include my kids in my work life right now that has not maybe worked out so well. Um, But, you know, family. We're all with our families right now, if we're lucky. And oh my god, I'm never going to get this episode recorded. I'm trying to record people, dogs, kids, I can't. I'm waiting for you now. Do what you have to do. I was going to make lunch. Do you want me to wait? Yes, please. And the doctor hasn't called yet. Can you get... I could do this all day, but I'm going to spare you all from any further ridiculousness and just do some editing and make it work. I think you get the point. Groundhog Day is my favorite movie, but I feel like living it with constant interruptions is maybe not the most fun. Sure, Bill Murray was able to get his act together and learn piano and French and ice sculpting, but did he have two kids and a husband throwing constant surprise elements into his completely predictable days? No, he did not. So, let's just get on with the episode. We went to Savannah a little over a month ago, in what seems like a lifetime ago now, as we have been sheltering in place here in Athens, Georgia, for 33 days and counting during the COVID-19 crisis. The boys and my husband were with me for that trip to Savannah, one of our last major Social outings where I got the chance to talk to Jessica R. Smith for this episode. 
Smith is a professor of fibers at the Savannah College of Art and Design, also known as SCAD around here, and co-author with Susan Falls of the book Overshot, The Political Aesthetics of Woven Textiles from the Antebellum South and Beyond. Full disclosure for this episode, my husband works for UGA Press and is the publicist for Overshot. I don't usually accept or really even get too many pitches, but when it's your husband, it's hard to turn down, right? No, really, the thing about having my husband pitch me a book is that he does know what I'm into and he wouldn't have bothered to pitch it if it wasn't right up the alley of the podcast, which of course it is. Not only is their book about the Southern U.S. and about art and the context and politics of both, but it's written by two women authors living in the South. Like so many other creative projects that have been affected by the times we're living in now, the timing for the release of this book has been, let's just say it, horrible. The book release is the culmination of a five-year project for Falls and Smith. Five years, folks. Five years they've been working on this book. And it was released just as the COVID-19 crisis began here in the States. Several speaking events and academic conferences where the book would have been featured have been canceled. And in retrospect, I am so grateful that I had the chance to check in with Smith before this lockdown began and am really thrilled to be able to share her thoughts on their book with you for this episode. I know you're going to enjoy our chat, especially if you have an interest in textiles And I do encourage you all to show your support for them by ordering the book. It's available now from UGA Press. I'll give you more info and a discount code at the end of this episode. Did I mention that my husband was their publicist? So without further ado, here's my chat with Jessica R. Smith at her home studio in Savannah, Georgia. Check it out. Uh, Well, I would be eighth generation Floridian. Oh. If I had been born in the South, I think eighth generation. Yeah. So where in Florida is your extended So my family, family well, so my mom actually grew up going, my mom was a military brat, and so she ended up going back, but her mother was, grandmother lived in Leesburg, Florida. Okay. And then, um, but That's they North were from. Florida, right? North Florida, yeah. Yeah. Um, north of Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but they grew up in the Panhandle, so, um, and they were all many, many generations of Panhandle. Interesting. Um, Pensacola, Fort Walton, that area. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with that area. I grew up in South Georgia, and my uh, grandparents have, I hate to overestimate what it is, it's basically a fishing shack. Right. That's on Apalachicola Bay. Okay. Right. Freeport. Yep. Well, Um, it's interesting, because we never actually went over there very much, um, because then my mom, so when I was a sophomore, junior in high school, um, my mom moved on to her, at the time, boyfriend, much later married him, um, boat, and they sailed to, they were heading to Venezuela um, for a year. And um, and so when she got off, she ended up in Florida, and I just thought, I would never be in the South, actually. I would never be in Florida. Like, that was like the Florida family, right, was the whole thing. But when I grew up, my grandparents were, um, because they were retired from the military, they were in Hawaii, then they were in Southern California, and they eventually ended up in Florida. Um, but um, 
so, and then we had the Florida part of the family that we would see sometimes, but then my mom started dating someone that she had. It was the older brother of a friend of hers from elementary school that she had gone to in Florida. And um, so she ended up moving to Florida. And then I ended up spending many, many years actually off and on in Florida um, waiting tables in the Jacksonville area. Okay. St. Augustine and Jacksonville waiting tables um, so that I could travel after my undergraduate. Um, but well, I did you go to high school? I went to high school outside of Philadelphia. So okay. in a West has small Quaker boarding school. Well, and it was I went to boarding school, but it started in fourth grade there. Okay, so fourth grade through high school. Yep. And then where were you born? Well, so I actually, so my, my dad is in Alaska, or was in Alaska. And my mom and my dad moved to Alaska right when I was born. I was born in Ithaca, New York. Okay. And they moved to Alaska right when I was born. And then when I was two, my mom left. Um, and she went back to, she was a school teacher, um, and taught in DC, Fairfax County area and then went to law school. And And you went with your mom? Well, I split, I was actually in the seventies. It was not like, I think that mostly, you know, either parents, dads sort of disappeared Mm -hmm. or they split. So very differently than now where my friends, you know, are all living in the same state and stuff like this. So I literally, people would ask me where I lived and I'd say on an airplane. So I grew up. (laughs) Part-time in Alaska and part-time in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So I went to school in Pennsylvania with uh-huh. my mom, and then I was in Anchorage um, and Anchorage area. On the summers? In the summers, in Christmas. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I would leave two weeks early, come back two weeks late, um, So um, and over spring break. Yeah. So until fourth grade, I spent six months. So, um, so you graduated in Philly from high school? Is that what you said? Yeah, outside of Philly. Outside Westchester. Of Philly. Yeah. Okay. And then I went to, but I wanted to be closer to my dad um, and my stepmom, and I had a brother. They had a child, Michael. And um, so I moved out west, and I, I loved the northwest, and I had always been on the east coast. And so I moved to Seattle, but I didn't want to go to Anchorage to school, so I went to University of Washington. And your undergrad was in painting. Did you yep. have any and support and encouragement to do art as a young person? Yes, my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers were artists. Okay. Yeah, so um, my grandmother was, on my dad's side, was a painter sort of after the Hudson Valley School. Uh-huh. Um, and um, and then my grandmother on my mom's side, she did all sorts of different kinds of things. She was very much a sort of flirt of panhandle. You know, she read tarot cards for a short period of time. Interesting. She would do different kinds of painting and things like that. So yeah, so art was definitely encouraged. And because I went to this small um, Quaker school, we had a huge art program. So I did art throughout the whole thing, AP art and all that. So I was going to go to art school. Um, but I had looked at sort of the more traditional art schools. Um, and I and I really was interested in the academic side as well. I loved history. I loved English. So I couldn't, um, I just wanted to go to a bigger university. Plus I'd been in this boarding school where there were 90 people in my class. So the idea, you know, it's funny, everybody used to, I think still complains about, you know, 800 people classes. But for me, when I went to my, walked in my first art history class and there were 800 people in the auditorium, I was like, this is great. (laughs) Like, it's like, you know, nobody knows me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you liked being anonymous and just taking in the information and not having to participate. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I loved. And not having to always be like, you know, what are you doing and how are you? But, you know, in art school, they're small. Like, classes are always small. So, I right. mean, 
where I teach now, they're really small, but even in the university, I think we had, you know, 20 people in our classes. So, um, so it was always nice. So you still had this sort of small community environment. And so you decided to go into painting because you had a special interest in painting or just like, yes, it was always going to be, I guess I could have done printmaking. I, I also was really interested in printmaking and the work that I do with the exception of the weavings that I've done, um, and really the weavings I've done are conceptual. So, I mean, they, I weave conceptually gotcha. because the material that I want to make makes sense as a weaving. Um, so but, what kind of paintings were you doing? So mostly when I was in, um, undergraduate, they were figurative paintings okay. with a lot of, pa- like, I, I probably should have known I was interested in textiles cause there was a lot of patterning involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to, so I did a junior year, a junior semester in Italy in Florence and while I was there I took a screen printing class that was actually in a textiles like the studio was screen printing and textiles and so that was the first time I was like hmm this is interesting um, and then I so then after that when I came back I took a textile class um, just a basic dyeing class as my undergraduate and I started thinking about the ways um, that textiles and the figure and especially the female figure were interrelated sort of historically and um so I was you know sort of interesting in the way that the patterns could interact with the female figure and what that told about the female figure Mm -hmm. um and you know how you know various times of foves and the um and different sort of periods that use pattern and textiles surrounding the female figure and were there um, certain periods you were interested in, or artists? Yes, yeah, I think that. Well, in terms of artists, let's see. It. This was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. What was I looking at? <laughs> Ooh, that's terrible to think about that. Um, and yeah, as an undergrad, I think I was. I was actually really interested in that sort of period of the photo, like the right. you know. And um, I started thinking about Bernard Matisse and, immediately. Well, Matisse, right? Of course, Matisse, um, Bernard, and um, some of the sort of. Well, I learned much later that they all had huge textile collections. Mm. So interestingly, at the time I had no idea. I just, you saw a lot of textiles in the paintings, right? right? Um, but you, it does make sense historically now to know that that the, this was in the early part of the 20th century. There were all these textiles that were coming out of really sort of the North Africa um, region that were um, that were being sort of looked at and traded and... Um, it was when a lot of the Coptic textiles from Egypt were coming out and mm-hmm. textiles from Morocco and the um, carpets were, again, the, the Persian carpets were starting to have a new sort of a different kind of lift than, than they had in the 15th and 16th century. Um, and so they all had these textile collections, right? And as we know, like Picasso had African sculpture connect- collections and things like this. But nobody ever talks about the textile collections that the painters had at that No, period. they don't. And no. I have really never thought about it before until you just mentioned it. It's right. fascinating. Yeah, if we look at, like, we could grab, like, one of, I mean, I think I was just looking here. I'm sure I have, like, my gardener or something like that, one of my art history books. Mm-hmm. And if you pull up that period, you will see all these incredible textiles. Is it because of trading? Like Yeah, that's... absolutely. It was trade, and, well, it was when people first started to go, you know, on these sort of voyages. They were starting to, you know, there was the whole, um, the Oriental Express, and right. there was, right, it was the Japanese, you know, exoticism was coming out, and, you know, that was such a, and we know about the Japanese influence, right, of that right. period. But again, nobody ever talks about the textiles. And in it's that. interesting that you said that you were thinking about the female figure. Right. 
and these because you talk about exoticism. Right, exactly. And that's like, and at the time I really, like I was in a very heavily figurative program. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on the figure. Mm -hmm. I was interested in the narrative, which I hadn't really, I guess I understood I was interested in the narrative, but I didn't really know what that meant at the time. And then, um, I was interested in pattern and color. So color and pattern had always been something that I, even early on in high school. So all of those things at the time, I hadn't pieced them together and thought, oh, this is, you know, this is all about sort of the ways in which pattern and decoration and textiles and the female figure have sort of thought about exoticism and which eventually becomes Orientalism, right? Um, are they intertwined? And that becomes much later, you know, when I go back to graduate school and start thinking about the work that I'm doing, it becomes inter- like I become very focused on that sort of idea and how we look at the exotic world. And I'm going to put air quotes around that. Um, right. And how as... Um, artists, especially artists trained in the Western canon, are sort of, were responding to that work. So, um, so I was interested in that, and when I graduated from undergraduate, I really had no idea what I was going to do. And um, I was, I had taught skiing um, when I was in, in college. Actually, I taught skiing when I was in high school, and then because of Alaska, and then in college I used to pay for my skiing so by teaching, getting a pass. Um, and I had worked in a Montessori, um, and so, um, after school, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should do education. That seemed like a, makes sense. Um, my, all three of my parents, so my mom, my stepmother, and my dad were all lawyers, so I wasn't going to do that. And, um, <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, let's do education. So I took a couple of education classes, which is why I graduated in 94. Um, and I just was like, I'm ready to get out of school. Like, this is... Yeah, this is, it's time for me to leave. So I went to Florida, which is where my mom was living, and I started waiting tables. And I had met in Europe um, uh, two guys that were from South Africa. Met them on the beach. We were all camping on the beach in Spain. Um, and my aunt and uncle had lived in South Africa. I had been there. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go to South Africa. You know, go hang out and see Garth and see my <laughs> aunt and uncle and do a little backpacking and I'll apply to grad school. So um, I applied to grad school um, in early childhood education with the idea that I'd eventually get my PhD and work in at-risk programs, doing something public um, policy related around art and kids. And I thought, okay, so this is going to be perfect. I'm going to you know, go off. I'm going to spend three months traveling. I'm going to come back. But when I was traveling, I was like, why in the world would I go back to school? Like, why wouldn't I come home and wait tables and make a lot of, you know, as much money as I can and leave again. Like, why wouldn't I just keep traveling? So that's what I did. I deferred, actually, my graduate two, three times. I can't believe they let me defer three times. Like Now, especially when I have to make these decisions, <laughs> I thought, who in the world? Um, and um, I just kept every year I come back and I'd be like, nope, I'm not going to graduate school again. So my girlfriend, who I went to high school with, but who also had moved to Seattle um, afterwards, my best friend, um, she had also applied to graduate school in art and had decided not to go. And so I called her when I came back because I was like, told my mom I was going around the world. And my dad was like, who was in Alaska, was like, oh, that sounds like a great adventure. And my mom was like, you're not going alone. Call Amanda. So I called Amanda and I said, Amanda, we're not going to graduate school. There's this thing around the world ticket and we're going around the world. She's like, no, we're, what? that's a crazy idea. I said, no, it'll be really fun. So we did. We packed a backpack and 
off we went. And it was actually on that trip, I think I really started to put together this idea of like where textiles sort of mm. fit in the environment. And, and again, when I, I was still thinking, it's, it's, it's interesting because while I definitely would call myself, I mean, I am a feminist, but my work actually, at, initially I was really thinking of textiles and relationship to women and how women use textiles and make textiles. Mm-hmm. At the very end, when I came, like many years later after traveling, I actually came around to this sort of another idea around the way that women use textiles to tell narratives about themselves and their families. And then also not just women, it was sort of, you know, in how people use textiles to tell narratives about themselves um, and to themselves and about themselves. And so that's why this latest project, which has been now a five-year project um, with the book Overshot, is interesting because it came back to women as makers, right? So mm. it was like this sort of full circle where I originally started looking as women as makers of textiles and seeing how they made textiles around the world. And then I'd sort of moved into how we use textiles. And now in the coverlets, it's both about making and using yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's, it is weird how that kind of thing works. I found the same way that your initial interest a lot of times really stick. They have some staying power, right? You yeah. know, but you you ended up you did go back and get your MFA yep. in textiles. So yep. during yeah. your trip, you kind of switched your line of thinking about what was more important to study. Right. No, I definitely did. So when I came back, so interestingly, at the time that I came back, I, so I went to graduate school in '99. So I came back from traveling in '90. Seven, I think we finished the round the world trip. Um, Ninety eight, I decided to start applying for graduate school. Okay. And when I came back, I was really interested in being off the wall. I had already started thinking about painting off the wall, and um, I just I was like, and so I thought I was going to do more performative work because textiles, the body, right. those were the things that I was sort of drawn to and thinking about. And um, at the time, we didn't have these big. You know, there, there wasn't really a multimedia right. programs. <laughs> it was one or the other. Yeah, and I actually think that m- many of my friends that went to um, graduate school in textiles, fibers, now they're often programs are called material studies, um, might not have gone into those programs, into the fiber programs, if there were the multimedia and mm. more mixed media programs. But um, at that time... Fibers was really the place that you could explore materials, and and that's the other thing is is I don't think I knew until I was really into graduate school, um, and maybe even teaching how much I'm a total material junkie. Like to mm-hmm. me, it's all about materials. Mm-hmm. It's about concept and materials and the kind of making. Like I have comfort areas, like we all do as makers, um, as artists. So the kind of making I do when I fall back and I have to think of new things, I always fall back on drawing. Mm-hmm. Drawing into photography, printmaking, actually very much not textiles, except that i uh, thinking about repetition. Um, and then when I decide to conceive of a project, um, mostly installation-based these days, then that project usually realizes itself based on the materials that I think are appropriate to the concept. Mm, so then nice. I either screen print, I digitally print, I weave, I know UV print, I do wall um, screens and things like, you know, so we're sitting in your studio right now. Um, are these, is this, what is this on the back behind us here? That's like 
gray and white. Is this a screen print? Is this a... Yeah, so this is actually wallpaper. Okay. I should turn around. <laughs> this is wallpaper. And so, okay, so in graduate school, so I came back and I went to graduate school at University of Kansas, which had a... Mm-hmm. So I, I looked, um, I'm really systematic about the way I approach things. And so um, probably because I grew up traveling between Alaska and Pennsylvania. So, you you know, if I, I will travel in, in a drop of the dime, I literally can take a bag and like go away for a couple months. But I always like to sort of know, you know, I'm a, a planner. good planner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, okay, I have a month. What am I, what can I do in a month? So I systematically applied, looked at all the graduate programs that had textiles. And I was interested in the commercial aspect of textiles because as I said, I was starting to really think about the ways in which we use textiles or we use pattern um, to build narratives about our own personal lives and our own histories. So when I went to graduate school, I started to build um, installations and um, started with wallpaper and then moved into the fabrics. And so from graduate school, I did a, my thesis um, work was in windows. So they were all vignettes that were in different windows in downtown Lawrence, Kansas. Okay. And each window represented um, sort of the Jungian concept of a different space in our, as we walk through our homes, we have these different spaces and they tell different narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one is actually called Suburban Garden and it's all narcotics um, that were... Ah discovered at various times and I spent um, many months in the special collections library in Kansas um, working with the librarians I love working with librarians and um, so we would go through and we would try to find they have a really great special collection of books and um, and um, botanical um, old botanicals and so she would pull out she's like oh I just found like the first you know botanical illustration of of cacao or the first of this and so I would draw from those and um and then of course I'm in the middle of the United States and so um thinking about the suburban landscape and this idea of the suburban garden being and it was when you know we're talking about drugs in the suburban landscape and and no longer in the inner city but how it's moved out which growing up in the 80s was not something that seemed new, right. <laughs> like of course, right? That was what the '80s was about, um, in many ways. And so I, so this is a traditional botanical that you would floral pattern that you would see in any Waverly um, textile collection, but it's all narcotics. Right. So you, I read in uh, maybe on your website or something that you were into sub, uh, subversion. Yep. Um, which I love. I saw one of your things had a dead squirrel in it. Yeah, it was like a mm-hmm. what's the deal with the dead squirrel pattern? It didn't look like a dead squirrel. It just looked like a regular squirrel. Well, it is like a regular squirrel. <laughs> I think I called it. So yeah. So actually, that's sort of a funny pattern. I when I actually yeah, I'm wondering if I have a piece of that textile. I'm sure I do somewhere. Um, so yeah. So 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 subtly subversive. What was my tag? I should I should know this. So I opened a company when I left graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I opened a company was because um, people started asking. Actually, I got a, a good amount of press. And this is printed by Studio Printworks. And is that they, here in Savannah? No, it's in New York. It's in Hoboken. Okay. Oh, actually, in New Jersey. It's in Hoboken. And they do... So they are a parent company of a hand-printed wallpaper company and that works with um, sort of high-end design brands and then studio print works actually works with artists to produce limited runs of t- wallpaper that is sort of built out of 
different artist collections. So, um, so I started working with them and um, actually started to do this. I mean, it really started as a faux design. It was a performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my installations were performances. And so then that's when, so all my patterns had subversion. You said redesign of historic motifs with a subversive twist. With a subversive which, twist. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, okay. That's exactly what I said. And yeah, so 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 it was fun because I could play as a designer, um, and I w- and you know you start playing at something, and then I became a designer. Right. So you have a do you have a business still? Designing? So domestic element is basically no longer. I mean, I license okay. to Studio Print Works, so I get licensed, but I haven't. The last pattern I produced for them was in two thousand five. Actually, I produced it for myself, but then licensed it to them, and that was actually commissioned by Design Miami. Okay. Um, when they opened, so that used to be Art Basel, and then they opened a Design Miami, um, and that was the South Beach Toile. So I also just sort of lucked into when people were doing the Toile de Jeu patterns, which I was fascinated with because they were narrative. Mm-hmm. They often contained figures. Mm-hmm. They were drawing-based, but then I could use repetition. I really love the idea of how repetition, um, I talk about this all the time when I'm teaching, is you know a lot of times people think of repetition as sort of frivolous in some ways or decorative like textile patterns um there's actually very funny quotes by many artists about the sort of frivolity of textile patterns and textile designers and um not intellectual and you know not um just pure ornamentation right and as we know in the early 20th century ornamentation was not looked upon favorably um and of course something that women did right so um, so for me, all of that was just such a fun place to play in. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's nice about repetition is, is that you can, you know, when you're working in a, des- especially when you're working as a designer, I always say, I, you know, working in the interior space of a home, I get four years to have a conversation with the people that are living yeah. with my patterns. And that's something like as a painter, I never even like thought about in this scheme. So, you know, I can continually place small, little, subversive or conversations in the work. Um, and it might be that somebody doesn't see them for three years. Right. As long as I can get them to see it in four years, then I keep the conversation going. That's really fun. I like yeah, that. Super I, fun. I recently did a mural and had the same kind of revelation about that. Like, right. I want to put things in this that people aren't going to notice for 10 years. Right. Yeah, because um, it's a mural, so it's yeah. going to be there for a while. Yeah, and so people are going to walk by and see. It's like really living with the art in a way that you start to become dismissive of a painting or something after a right. while. You think you've seen everything in there. Right. No, absolutely. And I think unless you're a collector or unless you're an artist yourself who is you know, purchasing or collecting work that you love and that you want to live with, I think the average sort of most people are buying paintings because they sit situated in a certain place in their house or they, they have a certain conversation with the other artwork that they have. Um, but really thinking about it as how that it lives in their house and not about the work itself. So um, when I started to work in textiles and work into pattern, I thought, well, you know, I can actually appease that sort of nature of like it needs to match. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I can also have these conversations with the people um, without having to be so in front about it. Um, And you can put those little things. I think murals are fun. I think wallpaper is fun that way. And you do installations where you design like entire interiors. I saw an installation that had furniture in it. And then you also have patterns on the wall. you window just I do window like I started getting into window films recently. Actually, that's what this is. Okay, it's a just that's a print of a window film. 
Um, and that is, and that actually, when we come back to the South, I can talk a lot about moving back to the South. Um, but what is a window film? I don't know what that is. So basically it's, it's the stuff they use again. It's like this marketing tool that, you know, when you go to like Kinko's or you go to like a storefront and it's like, you can see through it, but it's got graphics on it. So I just basically translated my photo. So I got really interested in panogram, uh, panoramic wallpaper. Mm Mm-hmm. The Zauber wallpapers are really beautiful printed um, El Dorado and, um, and you know, there's a views to North America. Again, these are all, so history is a really important part of my work, obviously. Um, and the, the different time periods in history that people, like, why would somebody put the views of North America in their home? Jackie Kennedy actually put it in the White House. Um, and what, what were they? So views of North America was designed in panels it's a panoramic wallpaper Mm -hmm. and actually there's scenes where the different like you can have the revolutionary like battle happening or you can have like the new york harbor or you can like you can actually sort of choose the america the views of america you want depending Mm -hmm. on how many panels you have in your space interesting and those to me are like these fascinating ideas of how we can sort of use the ways in which we adorn our houses as our own personal narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and very political. Very political. And political in all sorts of ways that you don't even really sort of always think about, like how the politics... And actually, it turns out that coverlets are hugely political. Um, and I don't think I... I mean, I didn't know that when I first started. I mean, I knew they were political in the context of Americana. But... I didn't really realize how um, political they were in terms of the making of them and the the women who made the overshot coverlets, whether they were in the North or the South, but specifically in the middle 19th century in the South, they were um, working, they were actually working um, the idea of weaving and being able to weave this beautiful, what we would call op art now, coverlet, um, showed that you could, you were a hard worker, and you contributed to the, the the material goods of the family, mm-hmm. and not just. And actually, they would say this in um, at um, in reports and um, farmers, um, you you know, groups would get together, and the and the farmers would say, well, my daughter wove this beautiful coverlet. Um, and this is because she made something that was utilitarian, that it was a material good. It was part of our, um, it's part of our family sort of wealth. And it's not just frivolous, like embroidery or silk painting, which I had never heard, like I'd never thought of that. Right. And so I thought, well, isn't that interesting? This idea of you like making something that has actual utility value to it, that it's a functional object is viewed um, having more value, right, than this decorative object. Um, and we see that in modernism, but you don't think of it in the Victorian era. Right. And how that relationship. So those are really interesting things to me. So for me, like back to this sort of turtle, the squirrel. So there's a whole pattern, the movement that was a very small period of time called bizarre silks. And bizarre silks actually, to me, sort of fit the sort of, they are like the quintessential textile of all the things that I think are interesting um, about Orientalism from sort of the 
17th century through the 20th century. And what they were was that, um, so as textiles were being brought into Europe from Persia, the Ottoman Empire, China, India, some Japan, even though we always think of Japan, not textiles, you know, not getting out until much later. Um, as they were coming to Europe, they were starting to take over. And the European designers who were, um, especially the silk mills, and the silk mills, um, they started to think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Um, you know, these these textiles are so beautiful and they and everybody loves them. They're exotic, right? And so what they did is, is that for a period of time, they started to make their own. And they would take these patterns that they saw coming off of these textiles that they were importing, and they would sort of use them within the context of also European decorative traditions. Mm -hmm. And so they created, they, they first when in the 60s, when they were being written about in the 1960s, as they were seen on furniture in, you know, castles and um, in Europe and, and big manor houses and stuff like that, they would find pieces of furniture with these bizarre textiles on them, and they called them bizarre silks. Mm -hmm. And at first people thought they were bizarre silks because they were from, like, bazaars. Right. But they were actually bizarre silks because they are, but they literally are bizarre looking. Okay. And, um... And they have bizarre all with an eye and bizarre with an eye. Yes. And they actually, to me, they look like they're right out of like a Disney movie. Mm -hmm. And um, so they they and they're beautifully woven, like beautifully. They they're masterful in their weaving skills. So the Persians really sort of mastered the like quadruple cloth weaving, and the Europeans then obviously learn these traditions. And so they have all of these multifaceted weaving traditions that we do on jacquard looms today. But this was well before the jacquard loom came about. So they're doing them on these draw looms and they're using multiple different kinds of techniques. So there's a technique called the damask, which we actually know of as like linens that, like table linens that right. our grandmothers used. So that's just really a structure that's a warp on weft structure that has this like shadowy pattern. I use it a lot in my work. Um, and, um, and then they would put something called a brocade on top of it, which looks like an embroidery. Mm -hmm. So those traditions were, were in place, but what, but what they did, which is really the technical mastery is, is that they were able to get that brocade to like perfectly match in the repetition of the damas. So they're literally designed together. Mm. And they would have these like things that look like giant, like they really do look like they're out of some Disney movie or some futuristic. They would have these like tops or they would have these vases that they were literally pulling off of carpets that were being imported in. Or they would, you know, there would be these Chinese columns that mm -hmm. they didn't even know what they looked like because they'd never been to these countries. All they had was, you know, paintings and book, you know, illustrations it's like and an textiles. Uninformed postmodernism. It is completely <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And actually uninformed postmodernism is very similar to going back to what we originally talked about is what those foves were doing with their textiles. Right. Like some of them have gone to Morocco. Just purely visual. Purely visual. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a couple of times while you were talking the coverlet, which is what you're new book uh, with Susan, Susan Falls is about that um, is how I came to know about you in the first place. I So can you explain a little bit more about exactly what makes something a coverlet? 
because I'm still not completely sure that I'm... I mean, I kind of see that as a lightweight uh, bed covering um, when I hear the term coverlet. So what does it technically mean for something to be a coverlet? So that is a really complex question because there's (laughs) lots of answers and I have like piles of books over there about coverlets and what is a coverlet. So I will tell you what I we define coverlets to be okay um because they have been called coverlets and cover lids um and a variety of different kinds of things over the years but a coverlet as we are talking about it is a woven textile okay that is a blanket so it is a bed covering um but it's a bed covering that's woven in um usually a specific three different structures and we're very specifically talking about which is the name of the title of the book overshot okay so but really when we think of a coverlet um i think many people think of it as a lightweight bed covering sometimes they're heavier sometimes they're lighter um and uh, they were definitely done in the the colonial period their most popular period of production though was actually the mid um, 19th century Mm -hmm. so about 1830 to 1850 1860 so it wasn't a big period of time that were like hugely popular um and i'm sure a lot of people will have a different sort of range um of dates so it was they were produced both in the north and the south um, in this country, there's a lot of questions about what their origins are um, in terms of the overshot patterning and the summer winter, which were the two that were that were possibly done on what we call farm looms. Um, summer winter would be six harnesses, overshot four harnesses, and then we get to the jacquard ones. And the jacquard ones, so the the story that you usually read in the books that were written between the '60s and actually the first ones, 1910, I think to about the 70s, always talk about these itinerant weavers, so Mm -hmm. weavers that are traveling from town to town that are creating these blankets. And really they were being created for the middle and upper middle class in terms of, which is interesting because eventually we think of as part of Appalachia, right? Mm -hmm. So, but these were symbols of a kind of American identity. They were a textile that was not being imported from England, was not being imported from France or India, which is what a lot of the textiles were being into this country. In the colonial times, they actually also became very popular with the idea that the um, the colonial Americans were making their own textiles, which they actually didn't make as much textiles as we would like to believe because we think of our sort of colonial heritages is that, you know, we came to this country and we grew everything and we made everything and we didn't, you know, we learned a few things from the indigenous populations, but this kind of DIY resourcefulness that's very much, again, back to politics is very much sort of the um, sort of backbone of our, the United States yeoman identity Mm -hmm. that we are talking about right now with the new elections. Um, and so, but the sort of irony of it is, is that many of the coverlets that had more of the like American eagles on them and these were actually woven by professional weavers mm-hmm. who had access to these looms, the jacquard loom. So it wasn't like the farmer's daughter making him proud. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but for the overshot coverlets, which are the simplest of the weave structure, you only need four harnesses, which is a basic barn loom. Those were being woven. Okay. On the farm. 
and in the home and in rural and in 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 suburb sub rural areas, but so, generally so, not big cities. So I want to talk to you about like how you came to get. So you how long have you been working on this book, with Susan? I feel like we've been working on it. I think we first started it in it's been six seven years. Wow. Yeah, a very long time. Many things happened. We had an exhibition. Mm-hmm. We both lost parents. We she had two kids and like so there you know it was a big period of time so we're times where we set it aside actually Susan I think two at least wrote one book in between Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was a period of time that um at times we would spend six months where we wouldn't work on it at all because we didn't know we didn't really know what to do with it we had written together in the past we've collaborated for years since we both started here 12 years ago both moved to Savannah together. Oh, we didn't move together, but we started at, the at SCAD. Time. Yeah. We started in the same year at SCAD. Susan's in anthropology. I'm in fibers. And we met right off the bat. Um, and so our first, actually, writing that we did together was about Cambodia and, t- and production in Cambodia um, and support of different forms of woven production by NGOs. And then we wrote about collaboration because in that process we realized, I mean, we come from radically different fields. Um, I have always had a semblance of writing in my practice, but not academic. You know, I wrote Mm -hmm. articles for journals um, and surface design, salvage magazine and things like that, but nothing in in the form where you have a critical sort of eyes, you know, and peer review and stuff like that. So I was fairly new to that. Um, Susan didn't have any background in textiles, but we were interested in the way that people were using and promoting these textiles in various ways. So then I walked into the, I was with my students in a history class and I brought them to the Owen Thomas house, which I always did. And we took a tour and we were in the, the tour starts in the urban, or used to start in the urban slave quarters. So this is here in Savannah. Here in Savannah. No, that's at the Telfair Museum. At the Telfair. Yeah, so it's the Telfair Cat. The Telfair Museum has three museums. And so there's the Jepson, which is the Contemporary Center. There's the Academy, the Telfair Academy, which is their um, 19th, early 20th century. And then there's the Owen Thomas House, which um, is a house museum. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we walked upstairs and there's these two woven coverlets um, on the walls of the urban slave quarters. And I just was like, what is this? Like, what are these? These are, these are not. And they actually had a, a label that said they were woven on jacquard looms. And I was like, there is nothing that makes sense about this. So these were overshot. They were definitely not woven on jacquard looms. Um, they could have been, but nobody would have done that. Um, too expensive. and um, But uh, the... And so I was like, why? First of all, I was surprised because I had never seen, I had always under the impression that coverlets were something from the North. They're definitely part of the Northern America, like, as I said, Americana, um, and quilts were in the North, but also in the South, in the South you did quilts, right? So there's all these sort of interesting sort of narratives that are around, um, about the kinds of textiles that people were making and using. So, um, and everybody always said that you didn't weave coverlets because, they didn't weave coverlets because they were, you use wool as your weft. So your pattern is wool. In the South. In the South. You wouldn't have wool. Yep. It's not, sheep don't live down here. Yes, (laughs) I guess not. Well, little did I know, there's actually, um, 
and I actually I should know his name. There's a a a, a man from Georgia um, who uh, Georgia State. Actually, I should look this up. But anyways, he wrote his dissertation, his graduate dissertation on um, the the yeoman farmers and the what they were producing and how much land they had, and that led to a whole bunch of series of research that I found. And it turns out that there were a fair amount of sheep. Um, and it makes sense because if you were, um, so your taxes and your amount of land was improved and unimproved Mm -hmm. and unimproved was the land that wasn't being used for farming, but it was really good, um, grazing land. Okay. So what we call the pine barrens in the South, Mm -hmm. that was actually, a lot of it was, um, also grazing land. And so sheep were all over the place. So what's really interesting to me about this beginning of this story is like that you went into this museum, first of all, that you were just like, you had the balls to be like, the museum is wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, in textiles, it actually doesn't take a lot of balls because museums are actually quite often incorrect in the way I'm going to be very diplomatic because I have a lot of friends that are in museums, but it is very common um, that Something they are. Something be misattributed yeah. or... You know, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like I just would never have the 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 strength to come up and be like, I am definitely right in this situation, and this labeling is incorrect. But you, so you went there with your students, and then how did Susan get involved with this? Did you go back and, like... Oh, I called her point, right away. You called her right away. Yeah, so and you guys I said, are friends. Like. Yeah, we're... Oh, no, we're good friends. Okay. So we're collaborators, but we're really good friends. Okay. And actually, we are surprised that we're still friends after this book. We <laughs> laugh a lot about it. We're like, we survived this. Um, but, um, because it's a lot to write a book and Mm -hmm. it's a lot to write a book when you have two, like, we think very differently. Um, and you know, I'm always saying that Susan, you know, makes my writing sound smart and I make her writing readable to most (laughs) of us. And so we always have this sort of, right? Like, so, so, um, and, um, and she's a really great writer. So it's been awesome to work with her because of that. But we do think about things differently and we sort of come to things differently, which has been very interesting for us. And we also have different, um, you know, agendas in our practices. As a matter of fact, it just happened to be that this project came about when there were lots of things in my personal life that were sort of taking me out of the studio. And I also wanted to make a change in my studio. I just didn't know how to do that. Like eventually you can't make twalls all the time. And I was sort of trying to think about how I was going to sort of shift um, my practice. And so as an artist, um, you know, many of us realize like when we start to shift practices, that's when things like children, new houses, family suddenly become very, very important and sort of take over your life. Because if you don't know what to do when you're making, then, you know, making your life and making your family, you know, strong and safe and all that kind of stuff is really important. So this book was good because it kept me sort of in the creative thinking and think and practice and research, which is what I really love to do. Um, but not have to sort of put my pen to paper, which, um, it probably took me away a little bit longer than I wanted to. Um, but it was interesting because I didn't realize, so we both had, so we came to this in different places and it's, and I, it wasn't until very recently because I've had to think like, how am I going to frame the book in the context of my studio practice? Cause that's really my studio practice 
I don't want to just write books or I don't want to just do research. Um, I also want to make things. And so how do I sort of bring these two together? Um, and it's been challenging for me to think about that. Um, but I think that the thing about the how subversive and subtle these overshot coverlets are politically mm-hmm. in various places and how they have been used has turned out to be really fascinating. So this idea about museums and sort of telling a museum that they're wrong. I had worked with the Telfair mm-hmm. um, in the past. I brought history. Like, they didn't have, um, you know, they had this big decorative arts collection, and a lot of it's in storage, and they bring things into the house museums, but they don't always have experts in those areas. So my graduate history students and I would go over there, and we would do research on different parts of their collection. So I had already, so I guess I wasn't an authority, but it, I knew you, you already had an in had, with them, and right. they already respected your opinion. Right. So you didn't have to be like this outsider coming in and being like, this is wrong. They were already used to seeing you as right. an expert. Exactly. Okay. So that so that helped in that way. But as I said, like when I was talking about the Suburban Garden, I had worked with the special collections libraries for years, working on looking at um, you know historic books. And so I also have a real big part of my practice is actually working with curators in okay. you know researchers historians i i go to um collections whenever i'm in new york i'm either in the cooper hewitt or the Rizzotti textile collection doing research so that is also so i do have that part of my practice that doesn't make me an authority but it does make me someone that is has some knowledge to bring to the table so this book when you're working on the research for it did you you went to different museums mm-hmm. specifically doing research for the book and would right. susan go with you on these visits oh we, we, all, together? we did everything together okay so the only times that we did we didn't do things together was if one of us happened to be somewhere and there was a museum okay um but usually if it was a house museum that we were going to write about we went back there together um i did the research at the cooper hewitt on the lovelace which is actually what the basis of all these patterns are um and i did that on my own but i also had a relationship with them i had done a lot of research at the cooper hewitt in the past um and so i did the uh, the technical research like counting of threads and 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 that's part of right which susan you know she actually ended up we have a picture of a loop in the book she ended up learning and so it's so funny because we would go into these collections and she'd pull out the loop and start counting you know <laughs> um and the reason why counting was important is is there's certain things that sort of miss that we were not trying to break but you know like the Mythbusters. we weren't trying to break myths we were just trying to figure out what the story was And I think the thing that's really interesting about this particular period of time in American history, and especially Southern American history, and there's been some people writing about it. I think there's more and more now coming out writing about it. But there's always been this sort of story in the South of the poor, white, the enslaved, and the wealthy plantation owners. Right. And we both knew, having family you know, being generations of generations of Southern, um, you know, ancestors. We both knew that was a myth. We just didn't know what, how that, like, where, where were that vast, you know, number of people, like, where, where were they in history? Where were they in the books? The yeoman farmers, the free, um, 
African Americans, the 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 land the people that owned land but didn't own large plantations. So where was this? And um, again, it's very timely. It's what we're doing talking about right now in our political. So so and and how did many of these landowners become non landowners? Right. And so that's part of the story. Trying to break down like a lot of binaries in this, um, which is always uh, challenging because binaries are easier to understand. Um, so there's a lot of great. Can you talk? Let's talk a little bit more about the Lovelace. So yeah. what is the Lovelace? It's a coverlet. And where right. is it? You said it's in. Well, it's from the Lovelace family. Okay. And it's actually now. So there's two fragments of it. And we still don't know. And um, in Columbus, Georgia. They have this. They they bought um, at auction the one that we were writing about that we had never seen that came from the Acacia collection. It actually came from the Slave Mart Museum collection, and that was donated in the late fifties, and um, it was donated by a woman who also donated what seems to be an identical, but we've never seen the two together. And actually, now that the Columbus Museum has them in Georgia. They hopefully one day they'll be able to look at the two fragments together to see if they really are part of the same coverlet. I, I can't imagine they're not part of the same coverlet. The same woman donated them, donated them within a couple of years from each other, one to the Slave Mart Museum, one to the Cooper Hewitt. Okay. Same story. So they were woven in LaGrange, Georgia on her great grandmother's plantation by the enslaved. Okay. So we, those, that came about after we had already looked at a number of other coverlets that we had really basically sort of decided that they were not woven on, well, they were probably not woven on the plantation. Some, in one case, there's a coverlet that has um, provenance of enslaved weaving on a plantation before the Civil War. It turns out the family hadn't even bought the plantation which was no longer a plantation because mm. they were no longer enslaved at, until after the Civil War. Okay. So, like, this sort of question about this. So a lot of this has to do with, um, I think, is how sort of people in the early part of the 20th century, what the stories that they hear about their families' mm. land holdings and place in society and the world from the pre-Civil War era, from the antebellum era. Right. And if we think about it, all of us who, you know, have these stories in our family, and especially those of us that grew up in the South, we have different stories from these time periods Mm -hmm. that are hazy. Right. But we think of our place in this world based on this sort of narrative that's passing down through the families. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, the Lovelace and the Grange, Georgia, they did at the at the time of the Civil War, I I believe, so there's this weird number count that is often used to delineate a plantation, and a plantation um, is a large farm or land holding that has 20 or more enslaved, is what makes a plantation, which when you live in, when you drive around now and you see subdivisions that are called plantation Right. court or something like that, you think, huh, it's so interesting, like, why we would try to call the place we live a plantation, since the sort of demarcation of a plantation is to holding 20 or more enslaved. Mm-hmm. So this coverlet was woven on a farm 
that did have that sort of fit that but only in the end did it actually reach that but the other thing that's interesting is is that this fam the lagrange georgia had a mill mm-hmm. had two mills another myth is that the south had no mills they did not weave their own textiles or do any textile production until after the civil war and that was very much not true there was many mills that existed here and then the the sort of third myth that makes this particular coverlet very interesting is this idea of homespun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, Laurel Thatcher Earlrich, the author, talks about homespun as being sort of spun domestically. So mm-hmm. homespun doesn't necessarily, in the context of talking about historic textiles, mean that it was spun in the home. Okay. But I, do you have a, does your family have a spinning wheel? No. Well, lots of families. I had a spinning wheel in my family. Um, there were a couple of them. And I, um, so there were lots of spinning wheels that ended up in people's families. Um, what we know is in the early part of the 20th century, it became a sort of artifact. It was a, it was, right. Ladies Home Journal said, Decorative. get a spin, get a spinning wheel. It will make you feel like you're homey. Right. Put it in your kitchen. Um, so, so this sort of interesting idea. So these are all the things that sort of made the Lovelace coverlet really interesting. Like two pieces, two fragments were donated to two different, one in New York, one in Charleston. Um, they both had the same narrative. The narrative is somewhat questionable about what we know about the weaving of coverlets. And again, I think that one thing that we came up with over and over, it's not that, well, first of all, the enslaved weavers, which there were many of, could weave coverlets. They had the skills and knowledge and to weave coverlets. It was likely that on a small farm where a coverlet was being woven by the mistress of the house that the enslaved would have part of that weaving mm-hmm. if they had one or two enslaved. Um, women during off times would be participating in that. But coverlets, as I said, what we know about them is that they were actually woven as a sort of sign of independence. And we also know that we see more of them being woven after we see a larger influx of textiles from mills from the North, England, and India coming into the United States and particularly into the South. So so the loom time was no longer, it was no longer necessary to use your loom time for utilitarian goods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, household linens and, you know, ut- utility linens, barn cloth, things like that, that a farm could purchase many of their textiles. And so the, that the loom time could be spent on decorative textiles, okay. like a coverlet. And a coverlet is decorative. Actually, um, Madeline... Shaw writes in um, a book that that she had, there was sort of letters home um, from um, Union soldiers that were going through and getting blankets and Confederate and Union soldiers. And they didn't want, like, if they had, if coverlets were what were available, they were like, oh, shucks, because they weren't as practical mm. as quilts and other kinds of blankets. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, they were, yeah, they just, they, they're not as... Utility, but really, a lot of the book is is talking about race and class. Exactly, um, because of this kind of uncertainty as to who was weaving what. So you're like you're coming in with this technical 
know-how and knowledge and research and trying to figure out like it, I mean I guess that's where Susan comes into play in this Absolutely. and like the wider like you're giving her the this is what could have happened with this right and then she's coming back in and saying okay well maybe that's an indication that these people were doing the weaving or you know is that how you guys are going back and forth well, with it? like I'm I'm yeah. interested in this collaborative process right. here with your you're being the fibers person right um, so I'm the fibers person. I'm also the sort of, well, not sort of, I'm the history person in our, so mm-hmm. in our collaboration, Susan is really, um, looking at visual culture materials okay. Her understanding of economics and class and race and all that is just, you know, and, um, you know, writings around it is, is immense. And so for me, I'm interested in how the, I'm, I'm really interested in the maker, not that she, she's definitely interested in the maker, but I'm interested in how the sort of making and the practice of making is being portrayed at various times throughout history. Um, and from the standpoint of how the object was like made. So as a person who understood the technical aspect of this very early on, for me, it was very, actually, you talk to any person that understands the weaving of these textiles and you say, I saw these on the bed in a slave cabin. And and people say, what? Why? Right. Like, like that doesn't, you know, you know, and some people would say, well, they're cast-offs or they're, which they... So I think you mentioned, I've read some of the book. I haven't quite finished it yet, but I think you mentioned, like, that people are looking them visually trying to put some kind of African aesthetic on them. Is <laughs> yeah, that, is that, did I read that in the book? Like, did. that's... That's what's happening, is that... You did. Where is it? I think I have the fry book, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. That is like... Well, that was a period of time. And so here's the problem. I So, again, as I said, so in no way... And, and we tried really hard, and this is part of the reason it took us so long to write this book, mm-hmm. is that there's an aspect of this that, that we... I, I don't believe that it was a regular occurrence for an enslaved um, to weave these coverlets. And actually, interestingly, we've never found any, um, coverlets that were woven by free African-Americans, mm. um, that have been passed down, but that would be really likely because there were free, if Afri- they were weaving them. Yeah. I mean, that would, they, they would, that would, they would continue. Well, no, I mean, people that also were gained their freedom, but also came right. into the country free or gained early on and then were generations. I mean, there is a, and so the, the important thing is, is this is not about skill or, or knowledge of weaving. It's about why were these, like, what was the purpose of these coverlets and where they fit into the sort of lives of the people that are weaving them. So in the, starting in the forties and definitely in the fifties, there were people who were advertising actually for when there was an increased interest in material culture of the enslaved, they, they would actually be advertisements of if you have any goods that were African-American made by African-American, particularly of the enslaved period, you know, we would like them. They're in your attic, they're here and there. So people were actually looking for evidence of, the African-American material culture for really good reason to start to, you know, to start to collect it because so little of it remained. Um, and coverlets were donated as part of these as well as quilts and other objects. Generally, the coverlets were donated with a, there's maybe two examples that we found where the name of a weaver was attached to them. Mm-hmm. 
And so then when the name of weaver is attached to them and there's a story of somebody weaving it, right, then you think, okay, then that, that seems like a good provenance. But the interesting part is, is as the other ones. So we were trying to figure out why that was. And that's where we sort of happened upon this writings that happened in the 80s and early 90s, where there were that there were sort of trying to have justification for why these textiles might have been. I mean, really, it was like, why would these textiles have been woven by enslaved? And that connection was to a West African tradition aesthetic traditions of design. That falls apart because the overshot geometric patterning is a patterning that also we see in Sweden, we see in Germany, we mm-hmm. see in the Welsh, Scottish. Like, so the, the, the idea that yes, there is these bold geometric coloring um, and woven textiles that we see in um, the in West Africa, but we also see them in many parts of the world, and the use of a supplementary weft, which is what overshot is, is part of a West African weaving tradition. Um, in the strip weaving textiles, so making those connections, um, you can see because the 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 structural connections, the technical connections, make sense, but they also are a tradition in most parts of the world. It's a type of way of making patterning mm-hmm. on a simple loom. So, so, and then this idea that without actual sort of technical knowledge, that just because two things look alike means that they're the same, right? This sort of notion mm-hmm. is um, is really interesting, and and this idea of a kind of justification. Which is, um, which is hard because so so for us it was hard because when we started to say wait a second there's something. Not. That's that's not like right doesn't make sense things aren't adding up in this picture. One of the things we had to sort of ask is well why does it matter like why is it imp- like do we you know is this you know sometimes, you know we feel like are we taking a skill history away from um from african-american are we like are we trying to like what are we trying to do like why does why does it matter who wove them in some respects well it's just the truth i mean you know but I mean, truth that. is relative <laughs> i mean but it's a searching for truth you yeah. don't want to be knowing that something is wrong or that is you know misattributed yeah. i mean yeah you want to and you want to know why like why why is it reported to be one way when it's actually the other? Exactly. And I think that that, and for me, like, I love mysteries. Like, actually, both Susan and I, we're like, we love mysteries. So for us, this was like a great mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Like this huge mystery. And um, and it's a little bit like the quilt codes. I don't know if you know anything about the quilt codes and the Underground Railroad. So there's this whole oh. thing that came out. And we know this isn't true, but it came out that, that people would hold, like, hang quilts that mm-hmm. had different patterns out to say they were part of the Underground Railroad. Right. And that's not true. Um, it's completely proven. But it's still taught in elementary schools around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I hear it. Like, I see it. And people talk about it. Like, I'll, I'll be at a, you know, in Savannah, someplace, and I'll hear someone talk about the quilt codes. And I'm like, that has been long debunked. 
but it's really compelling. Right. It's such a compelling idea. And so that's, I think that for me was the problem is like, am I like, if these things are compelling, then maybe the truth doesn't matter. Maybe the, maybe the sort of, the narrative and the sort of um, empowering nature of it, right? But here's where I, this is where, so I'm like, but I can't, I can't go there. Like, I just don't think this is right, right? So I'm like, okay, am I just being a stickler? Am I being a, you know, lawyer's daughter? Like, gotta find the truth. But, um, but really what it comes down to, and this is what, um, so there was a, there's a notion about a make-do, Mm-hmm. And these coverlets are supposedly part of this make-do culture that is attributed often to the enslaved. So this um, kind of innovation or inventiveness in a make-do world. But how are you making do? I mean, what is, in a coverlet, you're still weaving with the same, you know, where's the make-do in the materials? Well... Maybe because you're not buying the materials from France. So you're making do by making a decorative object using a simple loom, a relatively simple loom. I mean, that makes that narrative makes more sense with a quilt. It does, which is right. why it's more true with a quilt. Right. <laughs> but the other problem with the make do is that here's what we found. And actually, this is it was relatively late in the research that we came across this like that it started to make sense. It's actually also part of that lost cause narrative. Right. And it's, and we've talked a lot about that. And I think that's where we were like, okay, we can write this book. We can put this together because basically what is happening is, is that in the early part of the 20th century, this is the same time that the, um, all the monuments that we've talked about are being established, um, Confederate monuments and, Mm -hmm. What was happening is that there were, in large part, women, which to me is interesting, were um, putting together house museums and different collections. And the idea that these coverlets feel old-fashioned and homey Mm -hmm. and not sophisticated or Mm -hmm. intellectual, which has its own other problems, they're crafty, Mm -hmm. therefore, they must be made by slaves. And put in slave cabins. I mean, that's really like what we start to feel about this. This idea of if we make a slave cabin homey. But you but this pieces that you're that you're showing me here that are very op arty, this is your work. Yeah, but that but, but it's Lovelace looks almost like that. Looks exactly like that. What's that's what I'm saying. That doesn't make that makes more sense in a I know you talked about Annie Albers and um Absolutely. Uh, at water, mm-hmm. that kind of dichotomy between art and craft. This to me is more art than craft by visuals alone. But why is this more art? Because it looks well. It looks like op art, but it what looks else like about modernism? It? Yeah, but what um, else about it? It's framed. It's in a oh, particular size. It's not repeated. It's not put on a blanket. Right. I mean, it just doesn't. I don't know. I wouldn't have gone there with that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so it's really interesting, and that's actually why I started making these. Um, I made them, first of all, I was making them just to, like I was interested. We we decided to do this exhibition, fold on fold, and so I thought, well, we better start weaving a coverlet. I mean, I've woven over a shot pattern, but I'd never, and I actually haven't, uh, to be honest, I never finished my coverlet. Because you know what? A coverlet takes months. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, like... An incredible amount of time to weave one of these objects 
and they're challenging. And that's why we were doing the loop because we found that the ends, the majority of the ends per inch of the weft and the warp that was the ground was more than 30 ends per inch, which means 30 pieces of yarn in an inch, which is pretty indicative of it being um, spun on a spinning jenny. So mm-hmm. not hand spinning. Mm-hmm. So it's manufactured yarn. Okay. So most of these coverlets are using manufactured yarn, cotton. The wool quite so it's possibly. it's not a make-do situation. No. Right. The wool quite possibly was spun at home and quite possibly in the places that had enslaved labor by enslaved hands um, and those that didn't. Um, and But even then, what we found in LaGrange, Georgia, they had a wool mill. And actually the factory... Um, where these were woven, the the mill in the town that these were woven had a number of coverlets that were used in trade. And this is where we start to see the value of these objects. Mm -hmm. They were used as trade for having yarn spun and other objects. So a coverlet would be given in replacement for more yarn or more material or fabric or whatever was being. So they were actually used as a as a trade commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a divorce record that was the when the husband and the wife got divorced, and we don't know why they got divorced. She was allowed to take her quilts and one of, and an enslaved, but not her coverlets. Hmm. Yeah. So this is where we start to say, wait a second, these actually these are a commodity. Yeah. They, they have, have value. value. So they were made, actually, for the family. I, I, I really do believe that. And they were made in the tradition, the same tradition that we see in Appalachia and we see um, all over Piedmont and the South, um, that they were made, actually, as pieces for the family. But like many textiles that women made in domestic situation, there's always this idea that while they might be made for your particular bed or for your daughter's marriage or for this other thing, they still had value. So when things went wrong, you had this thing that you could sell or trade for food or transportation or... So I think we often think of um, textiles, and this is very much um, indicative, like Turkish carpets, is that we we think if you made it for your family, you would never part with it. But mm-hmm. in the time before the Industrial Revolution, things that were made for the family were often part of the... Um, they're, they're, they're in the estate records. They're, they're literally part of the wealth of the family. Right. And used often um, as a commodity when so, needed. So this mystery, this, this Nancy Drew mystery that we have going on here, <clears throat> we started off with this was probably not made by enslaved people. And then in the end, do you come to some kind of uh, definitive about this, that it's definitely made by yeoman? Well, like... it's definitely made on yeoman farms by yeoman women. Okay. Whether they had enslaved help? Help. Yeah. One of the questions that we have never, we have not been definitive about, but we imagine mm-hmm. is possible, but I don't think it will be impossible to have definitive help. We've tried to read through many diaries and things like that is that in the period of time that these were most commonly woven 1830s to 50s as I said um, they were we have um, did women in plantation settings use these coverlets Mm -hmm. because we do see them in like children's bedrooms 
So they, maybe the yeomen were making them for the wealthier plantations? Or probably not. What we probably probably what was happening, and this is one of those things that we don't often talk about in the South, is that the plantation families also had families that were relatives that were yeomen. Mm-hmm. That the shift between plantation it wasn't just a you're a plantation, you're a yeoman. Right. I mean, yeoman became plantation, plantation became yeoman. I mean, if if this is really a number based on the sort of kind of agriculture, which is really what it is, staple crop versus commodity ag- agriculture, that was more fluid than is often written about mm-hmm. um, in the southern landscape. And so uh, why wouldn't a house that was on a plantation that was in middle Georgia possibly have a coverlet that was perhaps woven by the woman before she married into that plantation or her mother right who was maybe the yeoman farmer right so just because that woman could now afford French linens doesn't necessarily mean that coverlets were not part of their lives Mm -hmm. and this is why we think things like the lovelace happened the the donation of these textiles and the attribution that they had towards the provenance of enslaved so the problem is 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 that very rarely we have one incidence actually in roswell do we have a story where a young woman is watching a coverlet being woven by the enslaved for her family Mm -hmm. so and again we you know, we can sort of look and see how many enslaved that family had and what that position is, but that would indicate that, you know, if we take that at face value, that was being woven by enslaved in the family. Was the enslaved woman who was probably woman who was weaving it, was weaving it in collaboration with or for, but also at the same time with the woman, the head of the household, you know, questions like, you know, were they weaving it at various times together? But, um... Or one after the other, you're not weaving together. But um, but most of these textiles are donated as just like these were woven on the family plantation by the enslaved, by on indigo grown on that plantation, which is also an interesting story. Um, and that's it. And then what happens is then, then they end up in the spaces of the enslaved. So it's not like nobody's saying these were woven for my family. Right. They're just saying they were woven by these enslaved on the plantation. And somehow these become crafty objects. Mm -hmm. So this whole dichotomy between art and craft, they become crafty objects and they end up in these spaces inhabited by these enslaved. And that's where I think it's really that sort of interesting idea that this hominess that was sort of being perpetuated. And again, that goes back to that lost cause narrative um you know they had warm blankets we took i mean you know this sort of whole idea of what these spaces that are the spaces of the enslaved are are styled i mean Mm -hmm. they're just styled right are presented to the public it's very complex to try to unravel like (laughs) so we never know because you know the stories that were told for so many years were maybe purposefully wrong. Right. Um, yeah. So it is It is very difficult. Before we wrap up yep. here, let's talk a little bit about this. So this piece that you made, which is 
loosely based on the Lovelace, you yeah. said. Um, it's, it's the same kind of look that the Lovelace had. I mean, it's uh, in terms of the bold, the bold pattern. And we have the books here in front of us. Yeah, so I'm going to actually so, show you the Lovelace. So this um, is your weaving on the front of the book. This is my weaving, and that's that shot. weaving. That is this weaving. Yeah, oh, University okay. of Georgia Press did a beautiful job with this book, I have to say. Um, I just, um, we were so impressed by what they did. Um, so this is actually, so interesting, we have a number. So this is a coverlet that was actually from the 50s, around 1960. It's actually a double weave. Okay. Um, and that was woven in California, or it was found in California. But this that's, one right here. But that's not the Lovelace. So that's not the Lovelace, but I'm showing you that because... Um, I think we have the Lovelace in color, the center. So um, this is the Lovelace. Okay. Very similar yeah. to me. Looks very similar. In well, it is. It's okay. the same structure. Okay. <laughs> like I, yeah, I counted this. I like I literally counted the threads on this to create the weave draft to weave this. Oh my gosh. So the only difference is, is I, on this one I wove with a pine yarn mm -hmm. um, and a linen raffia weft so again that was part of and this one was woven with a pine yarn with a it, it is actually it feels like raffia but it's a linen so it's super strong um and it's with a variegated um dye in the weaving so as you can see the white area so the on, on the cover of the book the undulation of this is mm -hmm. because of the way that the yarn was dyed so all i did was take modern material sort of explorations and applied them to a very traditional weave structure. Okay. And I created an op art piece. Right. <laughs> so then that calls us to question, right, about what's up, what's art and what's craft. Right. Because everything I did to make this was the same as the woman who made this. And that the year that that was made was? Um, I think we think it's 1850. Mm-hmm. We think that's what but that's craft doing. and this is art, yeah, right? Yeah. I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would say that that's a really good question, right? And um, Annie Albers and Atwater um, had a big debate about that. And Atwater, who that movement, which sort of that really um, was part of the settlement schools, Berea College, Appalachia, was a movement that we should teach traditional weaving, to teach these sort of techniques for traditional weaving, like follow patterns, mm -hmm. make tablecloths and coverlets and placemats and pillow coverings, mm -hmm. because that's the tradition. And Albers would say, we take the traditional techniques and we use found materials and we explore different w sort of ways of working <clears throat> with this tradition and this technique. But it, I mean, it, I don't know, in my mind, the major division there has to do with the item's usage, like what its final usage is. So if you put something on a bed, right, it's craft, right, which is why these aren't craft because I put them on the wall, right, and they're the exact <laughs> same thing. And I have one actually, and what's really shocking about it is I have one that I will put together. I have the four panels um, that I wove to put on the bed, and that took me infinitely longer than these took in actual labor time. And I will say, I'm, I am a contemporary artist. By the time I finished those four panels, I thought I was gonna 
like go crazy. I was in times really bored. Actually, that coverlet is not all the same. I changed the colors and the yarn. I didn't change the pattern, mm -hmm. but here's one piece. You can just grab it. The top one? Yeah. I changed the pattern. Um, I changed the color order and the types of yarn that I'm using. And the reason I did that is, is that literally you're <laughs> bored out of your mind. I was. <laughs> and, you know, it proved to me that, like, I, you know, it actually makes me want to. And I have a really good friend and my mentor who's a weaver who's saying she's weaving um, a coverlet now after the one that she wove. And she's trying to be much more traditional about it um, because it made me really think, like, maybe, you know, maybe my ideas of what makes something contemporary art are also sort of a lack of craft or detailed thinking or like this ability that I can just I'll just willy-nilly sort of make a random change and then suddenly it sort of moves from one area to the other and um I don't know I, I you know I I used to hate it when in painting they made us paint like our master like the masters I think there's something we can really learn from well it's you know I spend a lot of time talking about process decisions mm -hmm. so you know, for me, in order for something to be interesting, um, I have to be able to make changes and decisions while the process is ongoing. Mm -hmm. If the whole, it doesn't matter if it's a painting, if the whole thing has been planned out in advance for me, it doesn't fit my definition of art. Right. Like if I'm making a, a naturalistic painting and I already know everything I'm going for and I'm not making any adjustments in my mind, it's, I'm not as engaged in the process. Right. So for me, that's my personal definition of like what right. makes something art. Right. And I think and it's that's very modern. It's a very modern idea, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I actually thought this whole process was fascinating because it, um, for me, the whole, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to become of this work in some ways um, or where I'm going to go with it. But, um, but I learned like, that's the same thing. I too feel the way that you do. And, um, and so in that sense, you know, is it that women who were making these, they, you know, would made, make a number in their lifetime. So maybe they complete the object and then they make the changes in the next object. They're right. obviously weaving a lot faster than I am because they're doing it more regularly. But they're also weaving in between cooking elaborate meals and taking care of their family and often working, which is another thing that people don't talk about. They were often working on the farm, even plantation. Land. Well, you know, they didn't have iPhones or TV, no Netflix. No, no. <laughs> no. Is... and you can't weave this. I actually tried weaving it listening to a podcast yeah. and I stopped because it was disaster. I couldn't listen to, um, I listened to a lot of gypsy jazz um, and a lot of classical. I couldn't listen to any music that had, any distraction. Any kind of, yeah, like if it was a, a lyrics that I was interested in, like like hearing, not at all. Like, because mm -hmm. I would just lose my, lose my count. And I've done a fair amount of complex weaving, but I've almost always done it on a Dobby or a Jacquard loom. So the computer made sure that my, you know, my, my number ordering was going on. But this I had to do myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, two, three, four, four, two, three, four. Like, <laughs> just so a year of weaving um, left me um, even more sort of confused about what is art and craft. Great. <laughs> well, thanks for talking with You're me, welcome. Jessica, Thank and you. for having me into your studio. It's been really lovely.
Thank you. Thank you for talking to me and inviting (laughs) me to be part of this podcast. Thanks again to Jessica R. Smith for talking with me about her life, her work, and the book that she co-authored with Susan Falls, Overshot, The Political Aesthetics of Woven Textiles from the Antebellum South and Beyond. I really enjoyed our conversation, and she left me with lots of things to think on, many of which can be further explored in the book itself. You can purchase Overshot from ugapress.org, and as promised, I have a discount code for you. Enter the code 08UGAP as you're checking out on the UGA Press website and you will receive 50% off on the book. And that runs now through May 31st. You can find a link to UGA Press as well as images and links to Jessica's website and other web resources related to our chat on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L. Thanks for listening to Peachy Keen. The podcast is growing, and I really appreciate all of your support. Some folks have reached out to me as individuals to tell me what the podcast has meant to them, and I love hearing that it's having an impact in all of your lives and in your work. There's so many great women artists around the Southeast, and as you can tell by listening, I love getting to know them and their work and being able to share it with all of you. I always welcome your individual feedback. But it would really help to support the podcast if you would leave a quick review on iTunes, now called Apple Podcast, or on Stitcher. You can put in any name you would like, so it's pretty anonymous and only takes a minute. But it really helps people find the podcast, since podcasts are ranked by reviews. Peachy Keen also has a Patreon page, where you can join as a subscriber to pledge your financial support. Just go to patreon.com and search for Peachy Keen Podcast. As demonstrated by the introduction to this episode, it's been a little difficult to work on the podcast from home during this uh, COVID-19 sheltering in place. My policy so far has been only to talk to people in person for the podcast, because I really believe that in person, that human interaction is what makes the conversations we have here on PG Keen sing. Since that's not an option right now, I'm considering an episode or two via Skype or something like that. I'm still working that out because a virtual conversation is better than no conversation at all. And just like all of you, I'm trying to carry on with as much of my life as I can. So stay tuned. We'll see what happens with that. In the meantime, I hope you guys are weathering this thing as well as you can, that you and yours are all staying healthy, and that your days are peachy keen.